Hello, and welcome to episode four of As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Shu, And I'm Kara Sellison. Today we're continuing our discussion of Clouds of Witness, and we'll be talking about the solution of the mystery. So if you haven't finished the book and don't want to be spoiled for the whodunit, remember to listen for our warning so that you can pause the episode before we give away the ending. Yes, finish the novel and then come back. And in the meantime, we'll continue our investigation into the Riddlesdale mystery and the trial of the Duke of Denver before the House of Lords for murder. So, Sharon, hopefully for our listeners, it's only been two weeks since we posted our last episode. But for you and I, it has been so long. (laughs) So long that I've forgotten quite a bit of what we said in the last episode. (laughs) Yes, why has it been so long, Cars? Well, to start with, we took turns getting bronchitis. (laughs) Because you went on the moors without your shawl. It is entirely because of that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Far too dangerous. Yes. And then I got bronchitis and still have it a little bit. And you purchased a house and moved into it. I purchased a house. Yes. Uh, Which was quite quite the whirlwind. Uh, Very unexpectedly (laughs) uh, purchased the first house that we saw and been on. Um, who does that? <laughs> Although I can't, like, as a millennial, I can tell you it's very exciting to, like, know a real adult, someone who owns a house. <laughs> well, so far it's been um, home repairs and multiple trips to uh, hardware stores when we very irresponsibly do not measure twice and cut once. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that that's like entirely what homeownership is, is just going to the hardware store over and over again for the rest of your life. They really should give me a punch card. So it has been a while since we've talked and a a while since we recorded. Um, But in the meantime, I've been working on editing our first few episodes. And I, before we get into any other topics, I actually want to go back to something that I said in episode two and correct it because... You know, the thing where like you have a thought in the moment and you're trying to express it and you know you're not getting it quite right. (laughs) I have no idea what you mean. I always (laughs) express myself perfectly. Oh, yes. (laughs) Absolutely perfectly. That's that's why you have one and a half of the English degrees (laughs) in this partnership. But yeah, in our second episode, I just kind of like in the moment I was thinking about, you know, genre fiction and murder mysteries. And I said that one of the things that's intriguing about murder mysteries is that you aren't safe where you think you're safe. Mm -hmm. And I knew in the moment that I wasn't quite saying what I meant, but I couldn't figure out how to correct myself. And so like in the course of editing the episode and having to hear myself say that repeatedly, (laughs) it's just been bothering me more and more. And I actually figured out what I was trying to, like, how to say what I was trying to express by listening to someone else's podcast. There's a podcast called She Done It, and it's produced by, produced and hosted by Carolyn Crampton. She was a guest on then another person's podcast, a podcast called The Illusionist. Um, And she was talking about mystery, like murder mystery and detective fiction as convalescent literature, Hmm. which is not a term that I 
think that I had ever heard before, but it makes so much sense to me. You know, it's the concept of something that you, you know, you read for comfort, you know, like you read it when you're sick, you read it when you're recovering from something, something that you read that is, you know, entertaining, but at the same time restful. Right. And I think that kind of comes back to some of what we've talked about, right, about how the the genre of mystery fiction gives you kind of a predictable um, mm-hmm. narrative framework and that that, right. that kind of dissipates some of the, you know, maybe the suspense or not, not dissipates, but it, it makes like the suspense or the horror or the, the, uh, you have an idea of what expectations to go in with. Right. And, and you know that some kind of like catharsis is going to be provided mm-hmm. by the end, right? The mystery will be solved. Right. Yeah. Whereas, you know, like what, what I was trying to express before, you know, I really misspoke when I said it's the idea that you aren't safe or you think that you're safe because, you know, I'm just like, actually, that's not true of detective fiction. That is very much a, like a horror fiction concept. You know, that, that idea of that, you know, that there's no safety. I'm just like, mm-hmm. that doesn't, that doesn't reflect what I was trying to say at all. <laughs> it's like, I disagree with my past self. She gets a B, B minus. <laughs> But, you know, so, but in hearing Carolyn Crampton's explanation about convalescent literature and um, detective fiction, I kind of, you know, I figured out how to say what I meant to say, which is that it's not so much that you aren't safe, because generally the, the detective is safe. Like, even if there's a sense that there's an element of danger, you know, like in this book, Peter faces danger a couple of times. He gets shot. He gets stuck in a bog. But... There's an understanding that the detective is going to continue, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a security in that, the, you know, the detective is not going to be killed off. And by extension, you, the reader who's associated with the detective, you are also safe. Right. But so like more what I meant that I think that detective fiction does is that it touches on the idea that like death and murder and tragedy, like it appears in all areas and classes and walks of human life, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a like democratizing force. Right. And there's no idyllic country setting is going to be free from that potential for death Mm -hmm. and tragedy, especially tragedy caused by human hands, you know? And this is kind of what I've been thinking about as I reread Clouds of Witnesses. Well, and like specifically the episode of The Illusionist that Carolyn Crampton was a guest on, she mentions the fact that death is kind of distant in detective fiction like it's present but it's a little bit sanitized it's not intensely gory Mm -hmm. even in clouds of witness we hear a lot about lots of blood there's blood everywhere but we aren't getting visceral descriptions of how it's sticky how blood smells you know it's it's there we know that it's there and we move on right right like the murder itself is often part of like the prehistory of these detective novels. Right. Like you come upon the body, but it's not like there's no loving description of somebody being horrifically murdered uh, the way that there might be in like suspense or horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's very much, you know, like the, the corpse is an object mm-hmm. in whose body, you know, we talked a little bit about the way that the, um, I just forgot the word for when you dig up a body. Exhumation. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Um, But we talked about the way that the exhumation is written, that whole scene 
primarily taking place in dialogue as a way of distancing us from kind of like the visceral grossness mm-hmm. right. of a cut up decomposing corpse, which we as the reader, we as the viewer don't really experience at all, even though we get all the information we need. Exactly. Yeah. And thinking about that kind of clinical distance, but at the same time, the way that we're being reminded of the presence of death itself. And then thinking about that in terms of post-war England, the conclusion I kind of came to is that what detective fiction is accomplishing is making death something that can make sense Mm. and making death something that can be solved and creating a world and creating a catharsis where justice is possible. We talked in our episodes about Whose Body about how horrific World War One was, right? And I think, I really think it's safe to say that there was no one in Britain after the war whose life wasn't touched directly by death in some way. And in so many ways, World War One was just like this incredibly brutal experience that I'm sure for many people felt almost pointless. Mm-hmm. Because of the way warfare changed, so many people died in situations that, you know, you had to ask yourself, like, what did their death accomplish? Right. And so much of the the literature that gets produced kind of around and post-war, you really see that shift from like, oh, yes, this is the great war. This is the war that's going to end war um, Mm -hmm. into a kind of disillusionment. Even for people who obviously weren't on the front, you know, they were dealing with the aftermath of people not coming back at all, people coming back with horrific injuries, people coming back with shell shock. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to me that murder mysteries are kind of acknowledging that, that omnipresence of death, while at the same time making, creating a structure around death, where there is a solution, Mm -hmm. where there's meaning, and saying like, okay, we can look at this death and put all of the pieces together and understand Whereas for most people, everything that happened in the war, it's just like, why did this, you know, because there were so like the political background was so complex and there were so many moving pieces. Yeah. You know, you just imagine that your average person was dealing with the aftermath and going like, why did this have to happen? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of fundamentally the the narrativization or putting that those pieces together in kind of a a really tidy cause and effect way is fundamentally what drives the the resolution in in murder mysteries, right? It's like every, every clue becomes either like startlingly important, or you can kind of dismiss it as a red herring, but everything gets explained. And yeah, um, like, even in this book, the the whole, I don't know, like, a, a lot of the final trial, I think, ends up being a way of like narrativizing Cathcart's life uh, mm-hmm. such that it's like, okay, everything's kind of pointing to this one night at Riddlesdale, right? Like because X, Y, Z happened to him, then it created this kind of personality and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, like I don't right. want to get too much into the ending quite yet, but yeah. Yeah. We're not, we're not quite ready that mm-hmm. for that, but um, it reminds me of, you know, there's a bit where, you know, we meet MP Biggs, who's the solicitor who is, representing Gerald alongside um, the delightful Mr. Marbles. But there's a scene where MP Biggs is talking to Peter 
and he's kind of discouraging Peter from finding out too much information about, like, there's an unknown party who was on the grounds the night Cathcart died. Mm -hmm. And M.P. Biggs is saying, you know, maybe don't find out too much about that, because it might be more useful in terms of a court defense Mm -hmm. for us to not know the truth. And Lord Peter is just like, well, surely once we know the truth, everything will make sense. You know, we've talked about Peter's devotion to the truth before and how that becomes an an increasing theme, I think, in the books. And then we also Mm -hmm. talked last time about kind of the separation between the detect, like the American detective fiction as represented by writers like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and British detective fiction as represented by Dorothy L. Sayers and Agatha Christie. And yeah, just thinking about this is making me wonder like how much of that is a difference in the post-war experience, you know? Hmm. Say more. Well, now we're getting into um, where I'm just like, I hadn't quite figured this part out. (laughs) So in two more episodes, we can come back. (laughs) Yeah, in two more episodes, I'll come back and be like, so remember when I was talking about that? I figured it (laughs) out now. Well, and like, I do, like anytime talking about this, I'm just like, I think this is a really interesting subject. And also, I lack the familiarity with American detective fiction from this period to speak with authority Mm -hmm. but you know like the american post-war experience was obviously very different it was not as all-encompassing of a tragedy Mm -hmm. i mean there was a a big ocean you know creating a certain amount of distance right i mean american cities weren't getting bombed every night like yeah so you know it's not that americans didn't fight or die or suffer or but it was not to the same scale Mm -hmm. And so you have writers like Raymond Chandler, who objects to the British detective as being as being silly and, the, you know, like the British detective mystery as being kind of bloodless. Mm-hmm. I think I think he might even I would have to reread the, his essay on the art of detection. Um, but, you know, he might say something along those lines. Right. Where it's just like it's treating murder and treating detective work like it's an intellectual puzzle is as a disservice to what the actual work of detection is Mm -hmm. but then you also have raymond chandler who i think it's in the big sleep where a a side character is murdered and there's no explanation (laughs) like it turns out not to have any connection to the rest of the mystery and you never find out who who killed him or why it's just like ah people die all the time But, you know, but, like, that's a very different attitude. You know, like, Dorothy L. Sayers would never kill off a random person without explanation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also wonder if there's something to the idea that I think Britain and and England in particular have uh, kind of a longer tradition of thinking of literature or like popular culture as a as kind of a unifying force. Um, Mm. Partially, I think, because of just there's like a lot less geographic space to cover. Right. Right. Um, And I, and I think, I mean, I I don't know, I'm not as versed in sort of like American literature either, but I I think a lot of the sort of American myths of unification are maybe more historical, maybe more 
you know, kind of about like, oh, yeah, we are united by our belief in democracy or the American dream and opportunity and so forth. Mm -hmm. Whereas in England, because of also kind of the ways that publishing and history of the book and mass culture developed there, there's there was often kind of this this uh, sort of trope of like everybody in England is waiting for the next installment of Sir Walter Scott's latest book, right? Or everybody is reading Dickens serialized at kind of the same time. I don't, and and obviously like Americans do that too. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, which is true. But then also culturally, the like individualism in America is. Exactly. We want to believe that we're highly individual, regardless of any proofs to the contrary. (laughs) It is one of the cultural differences that probably informs that very clear separation between the like the two schools of detective mm-hmm, right. fiction books books that are about individual action for kind of individual consumption versus mm. books that are you know whether consciously or not existed in in this movement of literature yeah like con- convalescence i suppose or or catharsis yeah. or some kind of accounting for a, a national trauma um, and right. a collective trauma. And and again, not to get too much into the end of the book, but um, during the trial, Peter is off trying to secure one last piece of information, right, um, mm-hmm. to acquit Gerald. And it's really interesting to me how that part is written because he's he's flying back over the Atlantic and there's this very dramatic bit where certain B Biggs stands up and is like, you know, gentlemen, the barometer is falling. Like, and, and there's kind of this implication in the text that like all of England, you know, the, the, the newspaper headlines are like Piers son flying across Atlantic doomed mission. So that similarly to, you know, all of England is reading Mr. Dickens. It's like all of England is waiting for Peter Wimsey to come back um, in a way that I just would, I think would never happen in an American detective Mm -hmm. novel. I think you know, and some of that obviously is just physical space. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's really hard to get all of Americans to do anything at all. We can't even get everyone to vote. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I, I lost the thread. I lost That's the thread. Right. It'll come in two episodes. Join us again where Karen <laughs> will remember what she was trying to say. She'll have figured it out. Well, I I also think it's really comical that we are like drawing in such broad strokes about like the differences between English culture and American culture, because (laughs) one of the things that actually kind of drives me a little bit bonkers about this book is how like blithely there's these like large stereotypes about national origin and what that means about people. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like. That's very true. Right? Like the the French are sensual (laughs) and passionate. And Dennis was just, he really embraced his French side. And and that's why he was in this doomed love affair. And and like Helen, Helen as the the Duke of Denver's wife, as as kind of like the quintessential English woman who is cold. Yeah, wasn't there, there's even a line where she says something about like the lower orders are so something. I don't know, but I was like, I just remember reading that line where she's like, the lower orders. I'm just like, Whoa. yeah. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> just, you just said that thing out loud, didn't you, Helen? <laughs> yeah, you just, you just opened your mouth and that fell out. Wow. Um, yeah. But yeah, it is a fact that you and I were talking a little bit of, about how interesting it is that 
Peter goes, oh, you know, like I should have been I should have been able to look at Cathcart's bedside book and understood everything. Yeah. Which is <laughs> OK. First of all, like a, a horrifying immediately made me feel really self-conscious about having like the correct bedside books in case I get murdered <laughs> and someone comes in and is like, oh, yes, yes. I, I immediately knew like everything about her because of what she was reading. Oh, no. I'm going to go hide the romance novel that I have next to my bed right now. (laughs) No, no. Be be proud. Romance is great. Much maligned genre. Yes. Completely unfairly maligned. Yes. No, I I am on a kick of reading lots of romance fiction at the moment. And I am just like, I, speaking of convalescent literature, I have been (laughs) convalescing and all I want is this over and over and over again. Truly. Comfort reads, comfort reads for a reason. Yeah, you're right. So I, I think my, I, I won't get rid of my bedside romance novel, but I will just endeavor not to get murdered. <laughs> that's, that's a good that's plan. The best solution for, for life. <laughs> yes, uh, but not, not to sidetrack what you were saying about um, the, the cultural expectation. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, I think I only find it. I mean, and annoying maybe isn't even the right word. I find it really interesting what illusions Peter, but, you know, I think Sayers as well kind of expect the reader to to share. And and obviously this is something that the further anybody gets from the moment that a book was published, maybe the fewer sort of shared references there are, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I guess Man in Lascaux was like a very popular opera <laughs> during this period. And <laughs> maybe every other reader was also like, ah, yes, as soon as I saw that book on, on <laughs> Cathcart's nightstand, I too, you know, but yeah. I think this will also really come up in Gaudy Night, but mm. I, I like can never quite tell if it's supposed to be a like, oh, Peter is so clever and understands X, Y, Z, but no, even sort of the normal re- or the non-Peter <laughs> reader in, in 1927 or whenever would, wouldn't have caught that reference. And, and so, you know, and, and that like, yeah. that's a, that's a question that nobody can really ever solve for me. Yeah. Maybe that's why we have our everyman, Parker, who's just like, I haven't read it. I don't know what you're talking about. That's true. Yeah. And poor Parker did not have Wikipedia, which is definitely how I found out everything yeah. I knew about <laughs> this book. Uh, the democratization of knowledge. Indeed. Should we talk about Cathcart a bit more, our, our poor victim? Yeah, we we neglected him. As is our typical fashion. We're just like, we'll talk about everything except the actual parts of the murder, including the, <laughs> the corpse. Um, but yeah, do you want to kind of out, like, give some, speaking of broad strokes, but give some rough outline about who Cathcart was for our listeners? So yeah, Dennis Cathcart, I believe his mother was French. So he's like half French, half English, but raised abroad. He has like a maiden aunt who is very English to the backbone. And in in the inquest and <laughs> trial, it sort of comes out that she's like, oh, you know, this all happened because he lived in Paris for too long. Yeah. Uh, but he was, you know, there's this one part that says before the war, Dennis Cathcart had undoubtedly been a rich man. Um, he'd had a lot of investments and that were, you know, bringing in a great deal of income. And when the war breaks out, he, he joins up, um, in a, in a British regiment and 
uh, really lives. I don't know. I, I feel like there's a bit of George Wickham in him. <laughs> um, <laughs> like he's he's a very dashing officer. Uh, but mm. then as the global economy starts crashing during the war and post-war, uh, much of Cathcart's investments just kind of go up in, in flames. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he ends up losing a lot of money. And after losing all this money, Parker finds out at first that he's you know, he's he's able to sort of live off of that and put himself back together. But then one of the pieces of the mystery is that he starts drawing out, sort of taking out lines of credit. And they're they're not entirely sure why, because mm-hmm. like according to Mary and other people who knew him, Cathcart was uh, sort of like an extremely correct young man. So there were these flashes mm-hmm. of like, there was a lot of passion and sensuality, but he was also, you know, sort of, th- that was at the core beneath a, a very sort of like English gentlemanly exterior. So yeah, but I, I think it like it really struck me this read through kind of the tragedy of, of Cathcart's life. I mean, like the war just sort of cuts his life in half, right? He was raised to expect yeah. life to kind of be one way and raised to really be able to move through the life of like an English gentleman. And then because of kind of the loss of his money and the loss of friendships and reputation and so forth, mm-hmm. kind of ends up getting himself in in a bit of a bad place. And I, I feel like there's a lot maybe where we could parallel with Peter, where Peter's Peter's way out of that, like his convalescence, the thing that gets him through is finding finding something for his brain to do, right? Finding... Right. Uh, a way to make himself yeah. useful. And Cathcart just didn't have that. Like he, he's someone who we find out more and more was really floundering for, for meaning and for something to attach mm-hmm. his life and the meaning of his life to. And because of an inability to sort of correctly diagnose himself and correctly figure out what he was going to be passionate about, he he ends up dead. Yeah, this idea that Cathcart is an immensely passionate person who you know his life falls apart and when he's trying to find his way he ends up putting all of his passion into into one thing and that it turns out not to have been maybe a a safe emotional investment yeah he he falls in with a young woman named simone and this this comes out way later right like partially because he's so correct Mm -hmm. he didn't leave around a lot of evidence that he had this mistress his life was very clearly separated between his passionate love affair and his very correct gentlemanly persona but i i also feel like there's this aspect i mean you know he's he says later on or like they find this letter where it becomes clear that the reason he's taking out these lines of credit um, and gambling and, and trying to make more money is because Simone has very, very expensive taste and he's desperate to keep her. Like he knows she will leave him if he can't support her in a certain lifestyle anymore. And But I, I feel like that still goes back to this idea that he was raised to kind of be a gentleman's gentleman. Like, yeah. you know, an English gentleman, of course, will always take care of his mistress very, very well. Um, and so he's really caught between these like, these narratives or these roles that mm-hmm. society was offering him. Yeah. But he feels a responsibility to maintain standards. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Both publicly with friends and also uh, with this woman that he loves who has certain expectations. 
that's really what Peter means when he says like, oh, I should have known the moment I saw mm-hmm. Manon on his nightstand that this, yeah. you know, that he was in fact not just the upright young English officer, but that there was a great deal of like feeling and emotion lurking underneath the mm-hmm. surface. Yeah. And I guess there's, so this really, it's interesting. I mean, we talked, so we talked last time about how Clouds of Witness really is one of the books in the series that offers a bunch of examples of different kinds of romantic heterosexual relationships mm-hmm. between men and women. So, you know, you have the Pettigrew Robinsons, you have Gerald and Helen's marriage that's very unhappy. You see Cathcart and Simone, Cathcart and Mary, Mary and Goyles. Yeah. Um, and I think there's there's another relationship that I really want to talk about, which is uh, Mrs. Grimethorpe and Gerald, mm-hmm. uh, yes. which we didn't get into last time because an- another plot point that kind of comes out as as you go along is it, it turns out that the reason Gerald even stumbled across the body at 3 a.m. Um, and could not account for his whereabouts beforehand and, you know, that's why he's on trial to begin with is because he was having an affair with a woman who lived near the Riddlesdale property. And yeah, Karis, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about kind of what the Grimethorpe situation was? Yeah, Mr. Grimethorpe is a farmer who there's a small farm kind of a, in a valley on the other side of a bit of more from Riddlesdale Lodge. So walking distance. Grimethorpe, who we, we meet a little fairly early in, in the book, is a, a deeply terrible person, brutal to his wife, Sets his dogs on Peter. But his wife is, she's described more than once as a Medusa. Peter first sees her like really briefly in a dark room. And, you know, she's very frightened because of her husband. And he calls her a Medusa head of terror because Medusa was beautiful. And like there's this idea that Mrs. Grimethorpe is almost otherworldly beautiful. That's one of the things that makes her husband so brutal is that he is so jealous of, you know, the attention that she gets from men. And he he just assumes that because she gets attention from men that she must be partaking, which it turns out that she was. But I wouldn't blame her for (laughs) just like looking for any interaction that's going to be maybe gentle and loving as opposed to what she obviously goes through every day. Right. And, and it's interesting because I think, I mean, we can't, we can't really talk about Gerald and Mrs. Grimethorpe without really examining the, the power differential there, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, what does consent mean? You know, I mean, on the, on the one hand, like, Gerald is not the property owner, right? It's not, Mr. Right. Grimethorpe doesn't work for him. They're not beholden to him. Right. Um, he is only just renting the lodge, yeah. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's, he's so far above her in class, in wealth, in mm-hmm. in opportunity, in everything that, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I, I think the novel really kind of raises the question in the background of like, what was, what was the role of, of power in that affair? Like, it's, it's very clear that, you know, it's not like a love affair. They're not in love with each other. Gerald is you know, maybe just like, okay, I'm gonna have a bit of fun. But for her, this is, I mean, this is something that puts her life at risk. Yeah, like, it's, it's very real danger for her. And it's, you know, it's that question of like, was she maybe hoping that she could find some way to leave her husband with 
Gerald's help or like what motivates her to take her life in her hands for the sake of this love affair for the sake of Gerald for the sake of Gerald <laughs> so I'm just like let's I, be fair yeah I'm not so sure that I would cross the street for Gerald <laughs> um he's a bit of an ass yeah well and and there's this bit where when Peter first meets her um like the the narrator says you know, he, so it's right after he describes her or the narrative describes her as kind of Medusa-like. Um, and then it says that she had a wide, passionate mouth, mm-hmm. a shape so wonderful that even in the strenuous moment, 16 generations of feudal privilege stirred in Lord Peter's blood. So, like, that is really mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Right? I mean, that's like, bit, yeah. like, the narrative is essentially saying that Peter has this moment where it's like, oh... If we were living back in the whatever century and yeah. you were my, you know, the the peasant mm-hmm. on my manor lands, then yeah. I would avail myself of. Yeah. You know, that implication of, you know, like, oh, I want something. I should be able to have it. Mm-hmm. Which that's reminding me a little bit of what we were just saying about Cathcart. You know, that he was raised to be a gentleman. He was raised to keep up certain standards. And the narrative... I think puts a lot of blame on Simone in some mm. ways. Like it definitely, there seems to be an, this implication, I think in the narrative that Cathcart would have lived within his, you know, even his, even his lessened income, you know, that he would have lived within his means if he weren't trying to frantically support this woman so that he wouldn't lose her. And that it's her right. fault that he, you know, turned to, cheating at cards and you know these dishonorable things um but at the same time it's a little bit like why why is he entitled to keep an expensive mistress if he can't support her right right and like if that was kind of her i mean the the implications are like her options after the war were extremely limited as well Mm -hmm. right like she i mean okay first of all sex work is work like Mm -hmm. and she what I mean when Peter finds her she's extremely pragmatic about the men that she's attached herself to because you know some I think similarly to how we talked about last time that Mary's options are much more limited than her brothers are Mm -hmm. Um, and she has the benefit of being you know this upper class woman like Simone's options are extremely limited and yeah I agree with you that the narrative kind of blames her in a way that I'm I'm not entirely sure is fair. I also want to bring up, speaking of Mrs. Grimethorpe, I, I feel like the Grimethorpes are really where Clouds of Witness is its most Sherlock Holmesy. Mm. By which I mean, there's a lot of parallels between The Hound of the Baskervilles and this book, right? And, and it's been a long time since I've read The Hound of the Baskervilles, but... Also, there is a bog, there is this sort of mysterious duo in that book, you know, this this woman who is attached to the, the property somehow who uh, the the lord of the manor kind of falls in love with. Mm-hmm. Obviously, bogs are bogs <laughs> and moors are dangerous in both. Uh, and that's certainly a dramatic moment where Peter and Bunter get kind of stuck and um, Yeah, well, Peter gets stuck and Bunter rescues him because Bunter is the person who has common sense. That's true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. My sister was reading Clouds of Witness and I forget where at what point she was in the book, but she was just like, 
Bunter is the only person around with any common sense at all. I'm just like, well, you're not wrong. That, that is, yeah, extremely <laughs> correct. But like Bunter, so, so I think the reason why none of these mysteries can be told from Bunter's point of view is that there would be no murders right. if Bunter was in charge of everything. Just, just <laughs> as if the Dowager Duchess was in charge of everything. There, you know, she, she says here, right, none of this would have happened if I'd been around. Um, and I yeah. think that's extremely true of Bunter as well. <laughs> but yeah, there is, it's such a, a tense and dramatic section, which we get from actually Bunter's perspective, you know, like, Peter gets stuck he's neck deep in a bog which is not a place Mm -hmm. where you want to be and Bunter is doing his best to like keep him supported without sinking himself and they're calling for help and it's just like oh my goodness yeah it's a it's a tense moment and Mm -hmm. then and and I well I'm just thinking you know like you have this like very tense dramatic foggy night and then Peter faints and they they end up spending the night in the Grimethorpe's house. And, you know, first thing mm-hmm. in the morning, Bunter has found a razor somewhere. He's coming in with razor water. He's like, it's like, Bunter, you just rescued him out of a bog. <laughs> and he was in the bog, but, you know, it was his own fault. <laughs> and you have still managed to, like, behave like the perfect gentleman's gentleman in these completely ridiculous, insane circumstances. Like, really, Bunter? yeah (laughs) could you be more perfect (laughs) yeah and and you know he like scares up a breakfast tray for him too right just like oh my goodness um this is this is why i like correct me if i'm wrong but i think in the hound of the baskervilles somebody dies in the bog right like later on i cannot remember because not only has it been a really long time since i've actually read hound of the baskervilles what i think about it all i can think about is the wishbone tv episode (laughs) which i think they probably omitted that from from the Mm. tv show where the sherlock holmes was being played by a a dog i think they left that out an extremely good dog a very good dog Um, okay well okay so neither of us can remember and we are doing minimal research (laughs) so keeping like i think this I think we'll this happened. in the show notes if we were correct. Yes. So apologies to our listeners who have not read How to the Baskervilles if we did, in fact, spoil it. Uh, and apologies to our listeners who've read it and know that we are wrong if we are indeed wrong. Um, <laughs> Just but, apologies like, all around. Yes. But like I said last time, the thing that we know from Victorian literature as a whole is that moors and bogs always want to kill you. They want you dead. Yes. And I do think that Sayers is playing a lot with that trope here. I mean, the mm-hmm. fact that Peter falls in halfway through, we, we kind of know he's going to be fine. But right. I think that is where so much of the suspense comes from, right? Is that everybody who's read any book from the 19th century <laughs> is like, oh, bugs are bad. Get out of there. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That actually part of this bit where they're at the farm, it's a little bit, it's the most Yorkshire, I think, that the book gets. Like, it's it's the most local color we get. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, like Riddlesdale, could be any English manner anywhere because everyone there is the generic upper class English, you know, but right. you're, you're not getting local color there. It's a little bit, you know, like 
going overseas and eating at a McDonald's. It's like, yeah, maybe there's one or two unique things on the menu, but it's still a McDonald's. Mm-hmm. You know, and Riddles does just like, yes, we've brought our own servants. We've brought all our own stuff. It's right. Whereas um, Grider's Hole, which is where the Grimethorpes live, it's like yes. everybody speaks in a Yorkshire accent. Mm-hmm. Uh which is extremely interesting to read on the page. There's actually a reference in when Peter is being carried into the house. You know, there's this nightmare quality to it. And one of like the farm workers starts singing a song, which is mm-hmm. like at some point after reading Clouds of Witness, I looked this song up because I was just like, I had listened to the audiobook and like just the like the snippet that's in the audiobook got stuck in my head. I'm just like, well, I have to look this up now. Um, and it's a song called um, Oklamore Batat. And it's a whole song about how the moor wants to kill you. And <laughs> it's a whole song about how the moor wants to kill you. And it was such a popular song that it's actually referred to as kind of the Yorkshire anthem. And like when I looked it up, I found oh. like newspaper articles about like, oh, young Yorkshire people don't know this song. We should be teaching it in our schools because they're losing part of their Yorkshire heritage. <laughs> just like that's that's the yorkshire heritage <laughs> that the moors want to kill you is this also a song that has like fifty thousand stanzas it has quite a few verses but apparently apparently a choir went on a picnic on ilklamore and two members of the choir wandered off and came back in a state <gasps> of um compromised dress and everyone was giving them a very hard time about it. And apparently, like, on the bus or, you know, like, whatever they were, I've heard, I'm not sure what the time period was. So I don't know if it was a bus or a wagon or, you know, but someone started making up the song. And, like, by the time they got home, they had the whole thing written with harmonies. And because <laughs> wow. that's how that's what happens when an entire choir is roasting you. That's amazing. <laughs> May we all be so blessed. <laughs> yeah um and you know and it's a song that's in the yorkshire dialect that's kind of a dialect song but ilklamore Mm -hmm. batat means on ilklamore without a hat and the chorus of the song is you know like on ilklamore batat so it's like on ilklamore without a hat and it progresses through verses of where have you been you've been courting mary jane on on ilklamore without a hat you're gonna catch your death of cold and then we're gonna have to bury (laughs) you and then the worms are going to come and eat you up. And then the ducks will come and eat up worms. And then we'll come and eat up ducks. And then we'll all eat you. <laughs> and the last wow. verse is about how there's a moral to this that tale. Don't go without your hat. Because you will end up food for the ducks. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. incredible. And so, like, that's this. I am so happy you told me about that. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. But so, like, that's the song that this person is singing in the background, which. So it's a reference to. How stupid are you to have been on the moor? And also (laughs) this implication that you were on the moor for funny business, you know, kind of no doubt feeding Mm. into Mr. Grimethorpe's obsession with the fact that people are coming sniffing around his wife. So I was just like, hmm, 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 hmm. So despite how ill-advised that was on Peter's part, he does get a very key piece of evidence, right? Which was a, a letter that the Duke had said he'd received but had gone missing and you know he was like oh I I don't know I must have misplaced it oh oh no I burnt it 
Uh, and it was like the one thing that would have exonerated him. And where does Peter find it but shoved into a window in Mrs. Grimethorpe's bedroom because the night that Gerald was visiting her was windy and, you know, so on and so forth. So I guess, you know, Peter did not risk his life for nothing. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. And, you know, when we talked a little bit about, you know, we were talking about the power differential between Gerald and Mrs. Grimethorpe and like just how much power did she feel she had to refuse him. But at the same time, you know, Gerald is at the risk of his life refusing to get her involved in the murder investigation. That's true. Yeah. So it's just, a, it's a little yeah. bit like, well, you shouldn't have been there at all. You shouldn't have been putting her in this situation, but at least you were being kind of honorable about it. But at the same time, Peter, it's, it's made very clear that he's just like, well, I'm going to do everything I can to help protect this woman and but at the same time he's just like if i'm forced to i'm going to make you come forward mm -hmm. and sort of the 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 drama or the suspense of the second half of the novel is really the question of will peter find an alternative mm -hmm. method to clear gerald's name right yeah. because he does have mrs grimethorpe in his like metaphorical back pocket but he's he's like no i i need to you know find find a way to to clear his name without it being dangerous to her. Right. But there is also that, you know, there's a willingness on Peter's part to put her in danger if it means having the truth out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that also speaks to that sense of privilege, you know, and that sense of power over someone else because of his rank. It's, it's, it's a right. little bit. It's, it's not like he's giving her the decision. Actually. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you know, like even if she's consenting to this, you know, you know, the narrative implies that she was a willing participant in the affair with Gerald. You know, she talks about how he was kind and good to her. Um, but it's like, even in that situation, it's like, well, you still were lacking power in that situation. Right, right. You didn't have equal power. Right. So it's just like, there's a sense that Gerald abused his power in order to, you know, to have that affair. and But then he's willing to put himself in danger to protect her reputation mm -hmm. and you know peter is willing to put himself in danger you know like with this transatlantic flight that he goes on he is in very real danger in that to get this alternative piece of evidence so that she won't have to come forward but he is also still using his power to say you know if i have to i will force you which makes me really happy that at the end she gets to just walk away and be a free woman yeah so happy which i'm just like uh, uh, you deserve that <laughs> um but yeah, so but it's just kind of that complicated question of I don't I don't know. It's a it's like, okay, so you're both abusing your power and doing your best to do right by the people that you have power over. And like those two things are coexisting. Yeah, well, it's it's very I mean, to borrow Charles's phrase, it feels very like the playing fields of Eaton attitude, right? It's right. like a noblesse oblige kind of thing and it's very it's it's interesting how often this novel in particular sort of reverts to, to the language of like feudalism or medievalism mm -hmm. um like several things are described as medieval and i think i mean i can't quite tell if if the novel is kind of condemning the ways that the whimsies use their power but I, yeah. it's like all part and parcel of this this whole idea that their the whimsy name goes back you know is like right. embedded into the English aristocracy. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's one of the, those areas where I feel like 
Sayers didn't challenge herself enough. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked a little bit about how, like, in a literary sense, she experimented a lot with modernism. And in many ways, you know, she had very modern ideas, you know, like about women in education and feminism. And But then there are other places where you're just like, wow, you seem to have thought about this a little bit, but you didn't overcome your cultural biases enough to get it all the way to kind of the final conclusion. Right. If that makes sense. And I feel like this is one of those areas. And I think I can talk about this without spoiling things for our readers. But there, you know, I think this is something that's going to come up when we talk about Bestman's Honeymoon, right? Because Bestman's Honeymoon makes several references to kind of the stability that comes with Peter's rank and Mm -hmm. makes some references to a type of security that someone feels about being part of a class system where everyone knows who they are and knows their place and knows their role. And there's kind of an implication that like, oh, that feels secure and comforting Mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, kind of challenging that idea in a way that I think could have been really interesting. Right. Like rather than examining the ways that that system is built kind of on the, the, well, both the labor and also like the disenfranchisement of Mm -hmm. a, a whole swath of people. Yeah. Like the physical labor, but also the emotional labor. Mm -hmm. There's more than one reference in the course of the books to upper class people seeking emotional comfort with lower classes. You know, I will have to look this up to see if I can find it. But there's, I can't even remember which book it's in. But it's like, I think someone is described as like they need comfort and they go like with the sense of the homing pigeon to the kitchen to be comforted. Or and like in this book, so there's this little bit at the beginning of chapter four in Clouds of Witness, there's this wonderful conversation that Peter is having with Bunter, right? Like Bunter has brought him his coffee and Peter is is saying that, we, you know, we must have the facts. And Bunter quotes something that his, his mother used to tell him about how facts are like cows. If you look them in the face hard enough, they generally run away. She is a very <laughs> courageous woman, my lord. And in the book says that Lord Peter stretched out his hand impulsively but Mr. Bunter was too well trained to see it. Mm. And so, you know, but it's just like this moment of Peter is feeling the, the strain of knowing that the facts that he uncovers may endanger at least one of his siblings, you know, and, and Bunter is comforting him, but the comfort can't go too far because right. it wouldn't be correct. And Bunter is much too correct to, to let that happen. <laughs> Right. Well, we'll save you from a bog, but not, <laughs> but not give you a hug. <laughs> right. Well, and like, you know, like after he's saved Peter from a bog, you know, Peter's just like, well, I, I think Peter says I won't do anything embarrassing, but, but thanks all the same. <laughs> you know, and I think there's this idea that the lower classes are allowed to have emotions in a way that the upper classes are not, because there's supposed to be this idea of control. Control seems to have been a big part of Cathcart's character and he keeps his his passion very tightly leashed and we see Peter doing the same thing you know Peter is described as taking after the French side of the whimsy family and you know has this passionate nature that he is always keeping controlled because that's how he's been trained Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but so, yeah, so there, I think that there's this idea that the lower classes do a lot of emotional labor for the upper classes. Right. 
I, I wanted to kind of briefly touch back on, I mean, this idea of, you know, Sayers examining some some biases or, or sort of interested in upending some cultural assumptions, but not others, because they're, you know, just let's, let's just kind of look at the spot of anti-Semitism <laughs> in this book. Yeah. I mean, there's the bit where Mrs. Grimethorpe is, she's discussed as, uh, or described as having kind of like Jewish features. Mm-hmm. It's, it's right after Peter stays overnight and he's, you know, he's going to, to thank her ostensibly, but also to, you know, try to pump her for some information. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm going to read this whole description because I think it is just so intense and, and a little weird. So she emerges once again, like from a dark doorway. So she's always coming out of dark places, which is you know, interesting. Framed there, the cold sunlight just lighting upon her still dead white face and heavy dark hair. She was more wonderful than ever. There was no trace of Yorkshire descent in the long, dark eyes and curled mouth. The curve of nose and cheekbones vouched for an origin immensely remote. Coming out of the darkness, she might have just risen from her far tomb in the pyramids, dropping the dry and perfumed grave bands from her fingers. Lord Peter pulled himself together. Foreign, he said to himself matter-of-factly. Touch of Jew, perhaps. Or Spanish, is it? Remarkable type. Don't blame Jerry. Couldn't live with Helen myself. Hmm. So... I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Like the the idea that part of her attractiveness, like this attractiveness that almost, you know, makes men lose control or whatever is on account of foreign blood. I mean, there's kind of a a long history in in Victorian literature as well of like uh, sort of the English woman's English woman being put side by side with a like jewish spanish woman like mm-hmm. like this happens in walter scott and so forth mm-hmm. and it's it's usually you know the young hero needs to make the correct choice who surprise yeah. it's always the english woman <laughs> so strange so unexpected i know kelsey peace but also like the weird kind of almost like mummification i don't know it's like mm-hmm. orientalist right she may have emerged from the pyramids yeah. She's exoticized. It 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 so yeah. reminds me of how Walter Pater described the Mona Lisa in one of his essays, where he's like, she's older than the rocks that she sits <laughs> on, um, and he calls her. I'm, I'm gonna find the quote because it's so intense. Yeah, she's older than the rocks among which she sits. Like the vampire, she has been dead many times and learned the secrets of the grave and has been a diver in deep seas and keeps their fallen about her. Like, oh, um, I don't know. Like, it, it's yeah, it like don't don't fetishize foreign women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe just as a starting point. Yeah. And just this like the, the grave, like she's she is very much. It's like a really uncomfortable way of calling her a femme fatale, I guess. Right. Like she's like literally a woman who both drives men to do stupid things that leads to their deaths mm-hmm. and is like deathly herself. Right. Um, well, and like the, and great. Like she this... has Jewish features. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, yeah, and there's like you know the I think at least twice the Medusa comparison is made. Mm-hmm. Um, one from the first time that he sees her and. At another point, I think when they bring him in from the bog, he thinks it again, or the narrative, you know, the narrator says it again. And like, Mm -hmm. you look at the descriptive words, even in this paragraph, that she has a dead white face, and her hair is heavy and dark. And yeah, it's, it's, I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah, but like, yeah, but the associations with 
with death and with like darkness and I'm just like, hmm, a little heavy handed right. there. Say right. Especially since I don't feel like her circumstances are her fault. You know, right. who knows what circumstances led her to marry Grimethorpe. But the fact that he is the type of guy who wants to hurt people, that's not her responsibility. Mm-hmm. And the fact that men fail to control themselves around her is also not her responsibility. Exactly. You had also noticed an, another brief moment, <laughs> a brief moment, a, a brief spot of anti-Semitism <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just one of those moments that, you know, like when we were talking about whose body, I'm just like, mm, there are just a couple of other small references that make me really come down on the side of just like me as Sayers was anti-Semitic, whether she wanted to admit it or not. Mm-hmm. Parker is in Paris, but he has quite by accident found the jewelry shop where the emerald and diamond cat was sold. And, you know, he's interviewing the staff trying to identify who purchased it and when. It's just a throwaway line where it says that one of the staff members comes over having just finished selling an engagement ring to an elderly and obese Jew. And it's just like, why did we need those particular specifics in that particular order? Yeah, I mean, like, the implication, elderly, like, as though he's predatory. Yeah. Like, right? And, like, really could do without the fat phobia. So Yeah, I can always do without <sighs> fat phobia. But it's, I doubt that it's something that Sayers thought about at all. You know, she was just, like, trying to create color for her scene, right? And it's it's especially disappointing because it comes after this really lovely interlude where Parker, being a good brother, is like, mm, what might my sister... Yeah. Like, as a souvenir from my Paris jet, and he goes and he buys her lingerie. Like, it's, I it's actually really... <laughs> I love the bit where he's just, like, undaunted. He remembers being in court and a, a judge asking what a camisole was, and he's just like, there didn't seem to be anything embarrassing about it, so I'm going to go in and ask for a camisole, and then, you know, Mademoiselle will, will show me other things. Oh, sweet Parker. You're so delightful. Yes, he's the best. Well... Maybe let's talk about the trial. Oh, yeah, there's a trial in this book. (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) Yes, let's talk about the trial. What shall we say about the trial? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think the thing that I was really noticing in two books so far, we've, we've noticed that the way that the inquest is conveyed is often really strangely or differently formatted so like Mm -hmm. in in both books there are bits that are done as like just straight kind of dialogue or script form Mm -hmm. and I feel like there's this way in which this trial is really set up as like theater and spectacle I mean like when Sir Impey Biggs is first introduced way earlier in the narrative it says something like oh yeah he was not an actor but he had a like a a shapely expressive hand that would have made an actor's fortune. He has a well-modulated voice. Exactly. So it's it's this whole idea that kind of linking the idea that the public spectacle of this very public trial that Gerald is on depends in some part on a certain kind of theatrics. And I, that's where Sir M.P. Biggs is like, he, like he's much more cognizant of clues and facts and how he can not like fudge them, but sort of present yeah. them in, in the most dramatic way possible. Yeah, abs- absolutely manipulate them. Yes. Versus Peter being like, you know, the straight truth. The pomp and circumstance that surrounds the trial 
is very interesting. Right. Because it, it takes place in the House of Lords. Mm-hmm. So there's already kind of all of that. Yeah. Everyone has to wear their, you know, their robes. Like like the book ta- kind of talks about like this complicated process. While the investigation is going on, people are going to the king and they have to get permission from the king to or they have to ask the king to appoint a, a Lord High Steward. The king has to pretend that he didn't know they didn't have one. And, you know, like, <laughs> there is so much pageantry mm-hmm. involved. I mean, even the paragraph where they're first opening up the proceedings, everything is in all caps. A proclamation of silence mm-hmm. from the sergeant at arms. And, yeah. you know, the presented the commission under the great seal to the Lord High Steward. And there's, like, there's a script, you know, God save the king and... And all that. And it, I mean, it, it almost shades on satire, I feel like. I feel like there's a, a little bit of poking fun at the tradition, but also making really, really clear how out of the, the ordinary this is. And, and it's certainly different from every other case we're ever going to see in Sayers because it involves a, the trial of a peer. But on the other hand, that's the only reason that Peter has enough time to investigate. Right, that's true. Is that they have to wait for this. Sorry, my book just fell over to this part where um, Mary is like, blackmail is so beastly, isn't it? And <laughs> I'd written in the margin, as opposed to murder. <laughs> well, I mean, she does tell Goyle, she's just like, I didn't mind thinking you were a murderer, but I do mind you being such an ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think we've covered most of what we wanted to talk about and most of what we can talk about without describing the whodunit. So, dear listeners, this is your warning. Turn off the podcast and finish the book if you haven't yet done so. But then come (laughs) back and rejoin us for the solution. So, Karis. Yes. Who is the murderer of Dennis Cathcart? Well, Dennis Cathcart is. And, you know, Sayers did follow the rules because the possibility of suicide is dangled. Quite heavily. yeah. Yeah. At the very beginning. Um, and then we have so many other clues. And there was a, it's like, woo, there was a third person that we find out was Goyles. And where was the Duke? And where's this letter? And there's running around. There's going to Paris. There's getting stuck in bogs. There's transatlantic flights. <laughs> but at the end of the day, Dennis Cathcart shot himself. Because his heart was broken. Because, because his heart Simone left him. was mm-hmm. broken. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that my sister was reading Clouds of Witness for the first time. And she was about halfway through, I think. And she was like, if this turns out to be suicide, I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> <laughs> and hey. I'm just sitting there just like, I don't know. How I have no idea how this book ends. Well, you know, it's it must have been because she noticed Man and Lisko on the, the nightstand <laughs> and picked up on yes. the clue. <laughs> yes. I didn't know it, but she's obviously an expert on French culture. She she did better than my husband did because he was also reading <laughs> this book for the first time. Um, it's actually his first whimsy. And I, I don't now remember why I decided to give him this one rather than just making him go in order. Um, yeah. But I think he was also like slightly deflated that this was in fact a, a mystery without a murder. <laughs> yeah, which is not something that occurred to me. And I think that has something to do with reader expectations. I feel like this book and this resolution would absolutely not work in a more recent murder mystery. Hmm. Readers who are coming to this book for the first time, who are used to reading murder mysteries, who 
have been exposed to detective fiction, I imagine, I guess I don't really have a lot to back this up, but, you know, I have this idea that this is early days of murder mysteries as we think of them, right? Right. And so a modern reader with more developed expectations is likely to feel incredibly cheated by this ending Mm -hmm. in a way that I think a contemporary reader might not have been. Because it might have felt new or different. Right. Yeah. I I also wonder if it's, um, I mean, maybe it is a book that gains more significance when you put it in context with the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. Because I was trying to think back to, yeah, like why I suggested to my husband that he start here instead of with whose body or one of the other ones. And I, I'm guessing that it probably had something to do with the fact that we see so much of Peter's family and get more of a sense of like who he is as a person. And I was, I think I was probably thinking like, Oh, once you really get to know Peter, then you're going to be drawn into wanting to, you know, read the rest of the books. And I guess for some reason, maybe I felt that whose body didn't give enough of that personal touch, despite the very important fact that we find out regarding his PTSD. So past Sharon made a mistake, I suppose. (laughs) But it is, I mean, you do really learn a lot about Peter's family life and about his siblings and his mother. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes it a book that's really enjoyable to me as a fan. Mm -hmm. And also I feel like really sets it apart from a lot of other detective fiction, right? Because like, Mm. so Sherlock Holmes has Mycroft who shows up every now and then, but Miss Marple is, you know, she's she's a spinster. She's a woman mm-hmm. alone. That's kind of what marks her. And I don't remember if any of Poirot's family ever swings by, but it's yeah, it's. I feel like it's actually really rare to read a detective series that centers so much on kind of like populating the the personal domestic life, yeah, of the detective. Because like, I don't know. I'm thinking. So so D. A. Miller has this great book called The Novel and the Police that reads Victorian detective fiction like through a, a Foucauldian lens. And mm-hmm. the, the the sort of theory that the book puts forward or, or one of the ideas that it puts forward is that the detective is always kind of like the outside intrusion into private family life. Right. And kind of the whole point of, the, of solving the mystery or the murder is so that that intrusion and the threat of that intrusion, right, the threat of like your private self becoming public spectacle Mm -hmm. gets dissolved. And so I don't know, I I feel like the whimsy books kind of flip that on its head and that he doesn't, he doesn't appear on the scene as this like whole complete person. And and in fact, in this book, it's like, it's his life, it's his family life that's being disrupted, put in the spotlight. And exactly. And I think even the way that the book ends where our good friend Inspector Sugg, uh, (laughs) comes across Peter and Parker, like, (laughs) drunk out of their minds, right? Like, carousing (laughs) through London. It's funny, but it also, I I think it's, like, that's really the indication of also, like, how much of a toll the case was, like, it was taking Peter, it was taking on Peter to have to really rein in all his emotions in order to solve the mystery. Mm, That's such a funny scene. It's so, (laughs) Not my taxi. Freddy's taxi <laughs> mustn't take friends' taxi. It is such a relief to get to that scene after, you know, the the high drama mm-hmm. of the trial. Yeah, I think all that's left is to kind of wrap up some some bits and bobs. 
Should we go back to that? I mean, we were talking about epigraphs last time and the one for Clouds of Witness was a bit kind of opaque to both of us, I think. Maybe we should yeah. revisit. The Wallet of Kailung. So it says, The inimitable stories of Tonking never have any real ending, and this one being in his most elevated style has even less end than most of them. But the whole narrative is permeated with the odor of jostics and honorable high-mindedness, and the two characters are both of noble birth. So I guess there's some obvious connections, the the nobility aspect. But do you feel mm-hmm. like this story has less of an end than most? Since it ends not with a murderer coming to justice. Mm-hmm. This book lacks cathartic release in the same way that other murder mysteries. Like, right. I think that there is a sense of catharsis, but it doesn't quite follow the pattern that you expect. You know, mm-hmm. the... You're kind of expecting the trial to be this cathartic moment. And it is a little bit, but then it gets overshadowed by, you know, Grimethorpe showing up and trying to shoot Gerald. And there's this brief and dramatic chase that ends with Grimethorpe being struck and killed by a, a car. Even the narrative notes, right, that after Peter presents the letter, everything else was kind of anticlimax. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's a bit meta, I think. For me, like the cathartic moment in this book is when Mrs. Grimethorpe goes into a store, her own woman at last, you know? Mm, yeah. And she she notices this blue scarf, right? Mm-hmm. And says like, oh, maybe it wouldn't be fitting because I'm a widow. And Peter suggests that she buy it now and wear it later on. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I really love that one of the final images we have is imagining Mrs. Grimethorpe back with her people in Cornwall and you know, maybe taking off her, her widow's blocks, like the moment that she gets there yeah. and, and wearing blue and, and just being free. Yeah. So I think in our notes, we actually both have the same favorite line. <laughs> yes, we do. Everybody's sitting at the breakfast table at Riddlesdale Lodge and, you know, Parker's there making them uncomfortable. <laughs> um, basically, they hear like a slight commotion in the hall. And then it says the door waltzed open. <laughs> And of course, it's Peter. And I just love that. The door waltzed open. You know, it's, it, it's, it's like my armchair. It's so much in just a few words. Exactly. Four words. And again, going back to like the efficiency of what Sayers does. And it's, it's just, it, it does that like, there, there's this thing that um, Hugh Kenner talks about when it comes to James Joyce. It's called the Uncle Charles principle because basically it's a moment where like the omniscient third person narrative voice kind of like switches focalization to to be like in a character's perspective, but it also takes on like the language that that character would use. Um, so it's it's not quite free and direct discourse. It's not really stream of consciousness, but it, because it's still like there's still sort of the the like pretense of of omniscience and of the narrator being kind of like outside of that character's consciousness, but the vocabulary aligning. And like, I just, I feel like the door waltzed open is both something that Peter would think and, you know, the way that it it, it aligns with the way that he moves through the world. And I don't know, it just, it just gives us so much. I I just love it. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm sorry I stole yours. (laughs) It's all right. I, I am happy to share. (laughs) my other favorite like single little short line Mm -hmm. is actually a little bit of dialogue from 
what chapter is this in? Oh, it's in chapter three. Sir Impey Biggs has been grilling Peter about the investigation and he knows that Peter is hiding something because, mm. you know, Peter is doing his best not to let anyone know that he's worried that Mary is involved right. in whatever's going on. Because Peter can tell that Mary knows something that she's hiding and he's trying to keep other people from noticing it. And mm. Impy can tell that Peter is hiding something. And so they have this this little back and forth. And but yeah, so but Impy just says right now, she's like, whom are you screening? <laughs> and Whimsy is just like, you're not paid to ask that kind of question here. Suppose I murdered Cathcart myself. You didn't. I know I didn't. But if I did, I'm not going to have you asking questions and looking at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> and I just love that, that looking at me in that tone of voice, which, uh, you know, and that's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, the door waltzed open, you know, like the door itself is not waltzing because it's a solid physical door but it's like the word waltz is giving you an impression of both how the door opens which is like obviously it's being opened quickly like flung open and how whimsy comes in through the door without having to say that and looking at me in that tone of voice yeah peter has such a strong and distinct like his 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 personality i feel like really becomes so distinct in this book and Mm -hmm. it starts kind of like coloring the world around it too yeah but yeah and also like it's just funny there's a lot that's very funny in this book are you reading anything else great right now i am reading the moonstone (laughs) (laughs) i am taking my homework seriously i went to the library and checked it out wow (laughs) and i have i have i have begun it it was thicker than i realized it was going to be (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm And I'm still just in the first section, right? So, like, I've only met the first of what I presume are going to be multiple narrators. Mm -hmm. But I am enjoying it. And it's striking me as really funny and, you know, reliant on communication through dialogue. Not quite the same way that Sayers does, but because it's written in first-person narration and you're getting so much personality through the narration, mm-hmm. you know, like especially in this first section where the narrator is this kind of like crotchety old man and he like, he is very entertaining which, you know, caught me off guard because I, um, I had read woman in white, which I think, ah. I think all of woman in white, is it one narrator or primarily one narrator? I, yeah, I believe so. Um, and it's and it's just very different in tone. Right. And it has it's been a hot minute since I read it. But I think the entire thing is, n- for the most part, narrated by like a young man who like he's taking himself very seriously. So I was kind of expecting that tone from the Moonstone. And it was kind of a treat <laughs> to open it up and be like, oh, this is different. <laughs> Turns out Wilkie Collins has a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Give me all this unrelated information about all these people. It's very funny. Um, Mm -hmm. Which I have a confession, which is that I don't like Charles Dickens at all. And I still don't like Dickens, even though people keep trying to explain to me that if I will just read such and such, I will start liking him. (laughs) I was about to say, but if you just read Bleak House. (laughs) I know, I could hear it coming. (laughs) But I shan't, I shan't. You are not the first person to tell me that if I would just read Bleak House. It contains spontaneous human combustion cars. Oh, well, I moving it to the top of the list then. <laughs> um, but I did eventually read A Christmas Carol, 
which did not make me start liking Dickens. <laughs> I still don't like Dickens, but I was very surprised when I started reading Christmas Carol and realized how funny parts of it are because there are parts of it that are hilarious oh yeah and then it you know gets super heavy-handed and exhausting <laughs> by the end it was just like oh yeah. yes we get it allegory yeah. just like please stop hitting me over the head with the allegory please the horse is dead the horse is very very dead but especially <laughs> at the beginning there are parts of christmas carol that are so funny and that was a surprise to me because yeah. I did yeah. not think of Dickens in particular <laughs> or Victorian novels in general as being humorous. I will very womanfully restrain myself <laughs> from like sending you a copy of Bleak House. But <laughs> I, I do think Dickens is like at his best comedically in it. Mm -hmm. And there's like an entire kind of like description of a... I believe it's a painting on a ceiling of allegory, like, like mm -hmm. really making fun of <laughs> heavy handed allegory. And just anyway, I, I think it might be up your alley. But yeah. Far be it from me to, to tell you what to read beyond the moonstone. <laughs> yeah. Someday, someday I will read Bleak House and I will let you know exactly how I feel about it. Excellent. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I think I struggle the most with Charles Dickens is one that I tend to find the female characters exhausting. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, dear, have you ever met a real person <laughs> once in your life? And the other thing is, I find the way that he writes children just deeply ludicrous. Oh, yeah. it's. it's I'm just like, have you ever met a real child? <laughs> no, you don't. It's just like, oh, yes, this, this child was naturally good. And it, it like instinctively wants to do the right thing. I'm just like, that's not how children work. <laughs> which is not like which is not to say that i'm saying that like children are naturally bad unless you train it out of them which no. is a worldview that i have heard mm -hmm. but i am saying that children are just small people they are not naturally more angelic or naturally more demonic or you know <laughs> than anybody else yeah, yeah it's just like children are people mm -hmm. but not in dickens <laughs> and i'm just it, i just anytime i try to read dickens and he's trying to describe a child or, you know, has a, a character who's a child. It's just my eyeballs roll right out of my head. Yeah, Can't I, I think that is, a, that is a fair assessment <laughs> that Mr. Charles Dickens existed in a time where men like him were the most important and mm -hmm. did not have to imaginatively put themselves in the shoes of others. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know, like, to me, that really undercuts the whole, like, social change aspect of Dickens, which I'm just like, I know is what was an important part of his place, kind of, in mm -hmm. the echelons of literature was the social change that he brought about with his books, and, and you know, like, his influence on popular culture in general, but... <laughs> The fact that he was calling for social change and taking care of people while also treating people like they were either idiots or angelic idiots or mm -hmm. <laughs> or or fiendish idiots or but just, you know, idiots in general. I'm just like, would you please <laughs> not? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to dump your porridge over your head if you do it one more time. <laughs> but yeah, so but yes, I am reading the Moonstone and enjoying it much more than I've ever enjoyed anything. Tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, a fair assessment, I think. <laughs> um, 
And I do think that I, that I see a lot of Sayers in the Moonstone, you know, like I can Mm -hmm. see the Wilkie Collins influence in a way that I did not when I was reading Woman in White. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, And then other than that, I have just been mainlining romance novels. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I'm just like, yeah, yes, this is what convalescent literature is. I'm just getting lost in it and getting to feel emotions about it because you know, like you know me, I'm a very emotional reader. I'm a very character-oriented reader. I tend to project a lot on characters. <laughs> and so I'm just like, you read a romance novel and you're just like, yes, there can, you know, like if you give yourself over to the narrative, there can be a lot of emotional catharsis. But it's, a, there's a lot of security because you know that there's going to be a happily ever after, right? Because if there's not one, exactly. it's not a romance novel because it's breaking mm-hmm. the rules. Like that's a very, very firm. No matter yeah. how much you mess around within the genre, if there's not a happily ever after, it's not romance. So it's like all kinds of terrible things can happen, which sometimes they do in romance novels. And sometimes you have to suspend disbelief. But it's just like no matter how ludicrous this gets or how dramatic it is or how much it seems like there's no possible way for things to work out, you know that they will. Mm-hmm. So it's it's okay. Right. These two people or two plus people will find their their way back to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be fine. There's that promise that you're allowed to experience negative emotions because you're going to be safe at the end. You know, it's a little bit like getting on a roller Mm -hmm. coaster. It's like, okay, you can flip me upside down because I know that I'm locked in and I'm going to get off at the end. Most likely. (laughs) (laughs) So I have massive anxiety about roller coasters. (laughs) Okay, less of a less of a good example for you. <laughs> but no, but I but I get it. I I get the uh, the idea. Right. So yeah, so those are that's what I've been reading. Uh, what about you? Because I took that vacation, I actually got to read a lot for about one week. Because um, mm. otherwise, kind of like every spare second when I'm not at work has been taken up with house stuff. So, mm. huh, which is you know not great, but. One book I read on my vacation that I really enjoyed is a collection of essays. So the collection is called Thick, and it is by Tressie McMillan Cotton, who is a professor of sociology, I believe, at Virginia Commonwealth University, but also sort of a public intellectual who's done a lot of public writing. And yeah, it's just... So the book collects both new essays that she wrote for the collection and then also revisited some of her old work, but did it in a really intriguing way of like never really seen this done before, where for a couple of them, she kind of took as her starting point, like, you know, I put out this essay on Taylor Swift appropriating black culture and Mm. white beauty standards, etc., And then kind of like examines the public response to that because so in that particular essay, she was like, yeah, I didn't really I didn't predict that the thing that a lot of people would have a problem with was me saying that, like, I am not beautiful and I can never be beautiful under white beauty standards because I'm a black woman. Mm. And all these people kind of coming out of the woodwork and being like, no, but you're so pretty. And she's like, you know, that's that's not the point. Yeah. And then like really going through like very rigorous analysis of uh, both like a history of beauty standards and how that intersects or does not with various waves of feminism Mm -hmm. and, you know, the black experience of that versus the white experience. And and just, I mean, 
really well done. And every single essay is, is really, really good. It's really good. And it's very accessible still. Like, there are moments where she exp- like just breaks down concept, like really, really complicated concepts. And she doesn't dumb it down, but she's so clear in the way that she explains it. And I, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like something I experienced when I was in academia was there can often be this assumption that a piece of writing that is incomprehensible is thus more intelligent, right? Like, Mm. oh, I don't understand this thing I'm reading. Therefore, whoever wrote it, spoiler alert, usually dead white guy, like must be really, really brilliant. Like that, I I feel like people just make that assumption all the time. And I love that Dr. McMillan Cotton with all of her writing and especially this collection like really explodes that lie of no you can write really really rigorously on topics that you have intellectual and professional expertise on in a way that is accessible to a wider public without talking down to anybody without watering down your ideas at all like it's I, it's really exciting so Uh yeah that was definitely the best thing I read on vacation that sounds awesome yeah so next time, I guess we will we'll be covering a natural death. Yes. Which also, I guess, thematically links up a bit to Clouds of Witness. It's also sort of like a countryside mystery. Very different characters and players, though. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And we will introduce one of our favorite characters from the Whimsy books. Yes. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I love her. Yes, in our in two weeks, if if all goes well, <laughs> um, if we are not felled by more diseases, <laughs> let's just don't go on the moor without your shawl, and you'll be fine. I'll do my best. <laughs> but yes, so in two weeks we will be back with our first episode on unnatural death. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at whimsypod. That's Whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. Our website, where you can find transcripts for each episode, as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast, is asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll tell all of your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. See you next time for more Talking Piffle.